This is, a, I think, a big reason why we have what I call burnout culture, is that we believe that our jobs define who we are. We believe that we, you know, we go to work not just expecting a paycheck, but expecting meaning, purpose. I, I wanted to, to write it partly to, yeah, to convince myself that there is another way to live your life. In this week's episode, we talk about one of the most requested topics, burnout. The one feeling a lot of you may have experienced in some shape or form. For this episode, we have gotten ourselves an expert, Jonathan Malzich. He has just released a book called The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. And in this episode, we discuss how can you define burnout and how does it even manifest in your life? What is the difference between a burnout and depression? What is currently wrong with our work culture? And how can you manage your expectations around work to prevent and build a better burnout-free life? So without further ado, my name is Kevin Fernandez. Welcome to Muse. Welcome back to Muse. I'm very excited for today's guest, John Malzik. You have an incredible book called The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. I'm super excited about this topic because it is one of those topics that has been requested by the audience and your book offers a fresh and new perspective on solving this issue. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of solving this issue, solving what burnout, like solving burnout, I think that we need to establish a common ground on what burnout really is and how it manifests in our lives. So what is, how would you define burnout? Yeah, well, and first of all, it's just wonderful uh, to be here with you, Kevin, and um, I uh, hope that we can address some of your readers' concerns. Uh, yeah, I mean, this this question of how we define burnout is, I think, essential to the problem of burnout that so many people around the world are experiencing. We know that there is something wrong with the way we work. Uh, we know that we feel um, overburdened at work. We're, we're not attaining the, the kind of life uh, that we want and we're not balancing work well with the rest of our lives. And this has been especially true over the last two years as the pandemic has turned everyone's work upside down to one degree or other. And, you know, everyone feels like uh, they are burned out. And yet at the same time, when you press people on what burnout means... Uh, no one has the mm. same answer. Um, and, you know, that I think is the first step 
to defeating the burnout epidemic is going to be to define it really well so that we can identify the people who are truly suffering and give them the help they need. So my definition of burnout is that it's the chronic experience of being stretched between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. So we go into work with all kinds of expectations, not just to earn a salary, but to find meaning and dignity and all of these kind of abstract goods. But then, (laughs) purpose, exactly, yeah. Um, And we, we get to work and those ideals are very often, sometimes they are attained. Um, but very often they are not. And, you know, you, you go to work and you, you don't have much autonomy. You are working too much. You uh, have a conflict between your values and your employer, all of those things. And you can, you can go through that for short periods of time without tremendous damage. But over time, that just stretches your soul in a way. Um, and and causes psychological and and personal and physical harm. And now there's, when researchers study burnout, they identify three main uh, dimensions of it. One is exhaustion, which I think most of us know what that feels like. Though the exhaustion of burnout is the kind that doesn't get better with rest, You take a long weekend off, you take a vacation, you come back, but you're no, you know, you you still have the same problem. Uh, That's exhaustion. The second is cynicism or depersonalization. When you start viewing the people you work with as less than fully human, you know, for instance, you view them as uh, as problems rather than Mm. as people. And the third dimension is a feeling of ineffectiveness when your work just doesn't feel like it's accomplishing anything. Um, Those three things together are burnout, are the the burnout syndrome. Um, And like I said, my, my goal in writing this book, one goal partly, is to get our public conversation about burnout to more closely match what scientific researchers are saying about it so that we can really benefit from the researchers. So you've mentioned exhaustion, cynicism, and ineffectiveness. How, how, I wonder, do you need to have all three to be burned out? Or do you have to, does only one classify as being burned out? Right. Well, that's that's uh, another very tricky part mm. of the burnout definition. And I view burnout as a spectrum uh, where someone on, on, you know, one extreme, you have people who uh, are not exhausted, are not cynical and feel effective and competent at their work. And those people would not be burned out. At the other extreme would be people who exhibit all three symptoms. So they are exhausted, cynical, 
and they feel like their their work isn't accomplishing anything. And so those would be the classical, you know, burnout sufferers. And according to the, the research I've seen, the not burned out group, and this was research that was done, you know, five or six years ago, the not burned out group uh, was 45% or so of the study sample, mm. and the kind of full burnout group was 5 to 10%. So then you've still got 40 or 50% of the population is in between mm. those two. And they have uh, partial forms of burnout. They might be primarily exhausted, but not cynical or ineffective. Or they might be primarily cynical, but not exhausted um, or ineffective, and so on. And the, the really interesting research, I think, is trending in the direction of focusing on those, you know, rather than burnout being like a switch, like either you are burned out or you're not burned out, Rather, it's this spectrum where there are many different ways and of to experience it of varying severity. Mm. How, how does depression come into place in burnout? Because it's one of those. I, I I think that a lot of people, when they speak about depression, they might also associate towards work or the other way around. Are you depressed because of work? How how does that? How does one fit within the other? Yeah, I mean, the the feeling of burnout can sometimes feel like clinical depression uh, and vice versa. But I think it's important to keep the two things separate. Uh, and the main thing that distinguishes clinical depression from burnout is that clinical depression affects your whole life. Uh, you can't, you know, you can't... Um, you know, take a vacation from your depression. Uh, burnout is focused primarily on your work. Uh, so, you know, in, in my case, and as I talk about in the book, uh, I was a college professor. Um, and over time, I, I became more and more miserable in my job. Um, I, I went to you know, I, had, I did talk therapy to try to figure out what was going on. I went on antidepressant medication that only helped a little. The one thing that worked that got me over burnout was quitting my job. I quit my job and I started mm -hmm. to get better because the problem was focused on my job. Um, I can remember my therapist said, you don't have clinical depression. Like, you know, it's just... I just don't fit those criteria. Though research shows that there is often a lot of overlap between burnout and depression. And people who are, who feel uh, very burned out by their work probably ought to be screened for clinical depression mm. um, because that's often a much more serious uh, condition that you know, they need real help from, for. Um, if they go around saying, oh, you know, I'm burned out, it's no big deal, that can conceal uh, an even deeper problem that, that doesn't just have to do with their work. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that in, in addition to getting really clear on the definition of burnout, 
we need to be very clear about the difference between burnout and depression. Okay. Interesting. Um, you've mentioned your journey throughout the uh, having your own burnout. You said that in the beginning that your expectations did, didn't meet the satisfaction that you got from your job. But this, in your case, and you correct me if I'm wrong, this is not because of like any monetary values, but because of the values that you would get out of being a professor. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I knew what to expect in terms of salary and I, I got that. And in fact, I, I think my job was, was very satisfactory monetarily. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to be a professor from almost the first time I met my own professors uh, at university. I, I just, I envied their lives. They just seemed to live, you know, the life of the mind. And that really appealed to me. And so I, I did the things that you need to do to get that job. And I eventually did. Uh, mm -hmm. And there absolutely were times when I was teaching that felt like the life of the mind that that fulfilled the ideals that I had for this work. But it was also a lot of drudgery. <laughs> and, mm. you know, the the students, and again, I want to say, like, I, I had many wonderful students, but, you know, the students did not, I, I taught theology. And Can Not... you just explain what <laughs> theology is? Because in Europe, it might be uh, a little bit different. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, right. In, in Europe, uh, you know, often the, the people who are studying theology are, are primarily the clergy. Uh, and that's to, to some degree that's true uh, in the United States. Uh, but the, the college where I taught uh, was Catholic And mm -hmm. all of the students were required to take theology. So if you wanted a degree in, you know, biology or business or something, you just had to take this as a required course okay. um, as part of your, your kind of general education. Um, so, right, my, as you can imagine, if you go in pursuit of a business degree, but then the college tells you, Well, you have to study theology also. Um, that might be disappointing to you. <laughs> and, you know, so I had dedicated my life to this intellectual pursuit. Uh, and I get into the classroom and the students are sometimes telling me to my face, this class doesn't matter to us. You know, why are you taking it so seriously? You know, we're not here to learn what you have to teach. We're here for a different reason. And that, that really wears on you. I mean, that's that ineffectiveness, that sense that I am, I've designed this really interesting class and uh, I've, I've tried very hard to, you know, to reach the students, even students who are very skeptical about what I'm trying to teach, and to have that met with indifference is is very painful. Uh, and you know, so that was a factor 
in my burnout. And in addition, just all of the, you know, administrative aspects of being a professor, you know, the various kinds of paperwork and meetings and, and things like that, um, assessment, uh, all, you know, those were the parts of the job that I didn't see my own professors doing, right? Mm. Uh, and so I developed this image of what the job was like that was unrealistic. I thought it was, you know, sitting around and reading Plato and Nietzsche and, and <laughs> Thomas Aquinas all the time. But uh, it's not like that. Would you say that if you were in another college where the, the class wouldn't be required... Do you think that that uh, the college job would have worn so much on you? That's, that you that's, would still have a, a burnout or not? You think that would have changed? Yeah, that's hard to say. Um, I I sometimes wish I still could be a university professor because I think that I think I was good at it at times. Uh, I mm -hmm. think it matches the the skills and the, the passions that I have. And I still do teach part-time. I don't teach theology anymore. Now I teach writing. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, what I, what I always say is that what's, what's really a factor in whether or not you burn out is that gap between ideals and reality. So I suppose that if I had been teaching in conditions where the reality was a little closer to my ideals. And honestly, if my ideals were probably uh, a little more realistic, then, yeah, I mean, I, I would not have undergone burnout. Mm -hmm. I, I, I worked with, you know, dozens of colleagues who did not uh, burn out while doing, you know, basically the same job. So, um, yeah, they're, they're probably... There, there probably was a way that I could have, uh, if I, if I had been at a, at a different institution, possibly, but not necessarily, just because mm -hmm. uh, I, I still brought those ideals, and and the conditions are pretty common across uh, North American higher education. So, do you do you think that your 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 other your colleagues had different ideals or? The thing, the first thing that pops into my mind as you're talking about, well, they don't go through burnout, is that doesn't time heal the fact of going, like getting used to the situation, kind of readjust the ideals that I have towards a job and I normalize the situation that I'm currently in. Hence, I prevent burnout. Right. Yeah. And in... In burnout research, it, there's a, a fairly consistent finding that uh, researchers find burnout is negatively correlated with age. So what that means is that when they take a, a picture of a, a population of workers, the older ones show a lower level of burnout on average than the younger ones. Mm -hmm. And what you described could be one reason for it. You figure out how to prevent burnout as you continue in the career. But 
another uh, very likely possibility is that the people who burn out early in their careers just leave the career. And so then they go and they find something else to do and one that they can do on a more sustainable way. And so the ones who remain are the ones who, for whatever reason, did not suffer burnout. Um, so it, it, I, 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 I don't think that researchers have really figured out kind of which it necessarily is, um, mm-hmm. you know, but whether, whether we just kind of get better at dealing with it or if it's just that, uh, all, all the people who are most susceptible to it switch careers, uh, so they, they don't stick around. How much does us linking ourselves, our identity towards our jobs have to do with like the likelihood of us getting a burnout or does it does is there a link at all in in your mind like in in your opinion yeah i think that there's a huge link and i think that you see that this is a i think a big reason why we have what i call burnout culture in you know in north america in europe and around the world is that we believe that our jobs define who we are. We believe that we, you know, we go to work not just expecting a paycheck, but expecting meaning, purpose. Uh, We're going to prove ourselves as good people, good citizens, good providers, all of that. Uh, And, you know, that's, that's just an inc- incredibly high expectations for work. You know, that's just more than I think work can really deliver. And so I think that on a societal level, the way to end a burnout culture is going to be partly to lower our ideals and expectations, to not to expect to find our lives fulfilled at our jobs. Interesting. That is the one sentence that is kind of completely um, on the opposite spectrum of what we hear from a lot of um, self-help gurus. And to be fair, like myself included, I also believe that there is a space where you can work, where you are getting, you are fulfilled. Because like, like, completely honestly speaking, the reason why I left my last job is because of this unfulfillment. So you try to find this fulfillment somewhere else. And um, so how do, how, do we f- how do we get fulfilled in, 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 in the end? If it's not with our jobs, which is like a third of our lifetime, that's the, that's the calculation, right? We have a third of our lifetime is our job, so we might as well use it in something that we feel fulfilled in. Right. It's, well, it's a third of our lifetime for a certain portion of our lives, for the middle of our lives. And I think that recognizing that is part of the key to ending burnout culture and rethinking how work fits into our lives. Because we spend the first however many years, 16, 18, 20 years, for the most part, not working. Now, Mm -hmm. 
I think, unfortunately, children are often told school is your job. It is all this pressure for them to start identifying themselves with their work, quote unquote, um, from an early age. I think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> School is okay. not their job. School has value in and of itself. Um, and then we reach adulthood. And yeah, work for most people takes up a lot of time. Uh, you know, like you say, about a third or so of our lives. Though, you know, not counting weekends, holidays, and so on. Um, but still, there are quite a few adults who don't work, partly... Uh, or, or don't work for pay at any rate. You think about parents who are not working outside the home. What they do has value apart from its economic value. Or people with disabilities who are unable to work full-time. Um, mm -hmm. And then suddenly you get to older age and it's fine not to work. No one gets mad at a 70 year old person who is not working. Um, we only get mad at like a 40 year old person who isn't. And, you know, I, it, to me, that doesn't, that's just a strange kind of um, view of the value of human life that for these 30 or 40 or 50 years in the middle of life, you were defined by work. And we don't expect that later in life. Um, mm -hmm. And I would want us to, to start to see value in non-work areas of life at, at, uh, you know, from childhood and through adulthood and midlife and on into retirement to recognize that it's the stuff outside of work that is the primary source of meaning and value and purpose and dignity um and work itself exists to support those other activities that give life value so we should find value in anything that is not work related in our leisure in our relationships in our things that that we love doing but so I i'm curious again and this is like me just randomly asking is there a place where we can work without where, where we can work on something that we are passionate about where we that we love doing that fulfills us yeah i mean i think that there are all kinds of places um one possible one is is the family for instance mm. um and there is definitely a lot of pressure on parents to identify parenting as a form of labor too. Because if labor is how you become a legitimate adult and a participant in society, and you know, you are, you're at home largely uh, raising children, you have to redefine that as labor in order to legitimate your own life. Mm -hmm. I would say that parenting has value. And I should add, I am not a parent, um, but parenting has value regardless of the effort that goes into it. 
mm-hmm. that parenting has value um, not because it's it's like work. In so many ways, it's not like work. For in, if it, for instance, you're not paid. Um, you can't quit. You can't get fired. Um, you can't form a union against your children to, you know, get um, greater uh, greater concessions from them. Um, you know, and it, you know, right? It it, it it's often a, a considered a, a great source of joy, um, in spite of the drudgery of it. And so, you know, I think that parenting could be something that we should view not as, you know, primarily like work, but as something with an, with a good, being good in itself. Um, so I hobbies, parenting, like you said, relationships, um, you know, community activity, um, and religious activity as well. Uh, one place that I went, looking to find alternatives was in a Benedictine monastery in the middle of a desert in uh, the state of New Mexico. And the monks there, they certainly live unusual lives. Uh, you know, it's, it's a community of about 60 men. Uh, they live, you know, very far from any other, uh, you know, town or anything like that. And they they have to they have to be as self sustaining as possible, mm-hmm. and yet they work about three or four hours a day, because to them, their life of communal prayer is much more important than their labor. Well, I mean the the labor exists so that they can maintain their community, and the community is there so that they can pray together, primarily. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so for them, they've found something that is more important than work. And I think the lesson here is not, well, everybody should just join a monastery, but rather that those of us who live in the secular world need to identify those things that are more important than work, those things that, for which we are working, uh, the things that our, our work serves and supports, rather than make work the the highest end of our existence. And based on that, then we kind of reschedule our life, our calendar and our priorities. I think that's always the thing, right? We We have so many things to do, work included, and I like even people that want to do something based on their passions and like create their online business or something very small on the side. They have so, like, it's very difficult. A lot of people say they don't have enough time because they don't know how to prioritize what is important to them. But once you know what is important to you, you can reschedule your calendar and essentially prevent the the burnout. Right. And I think that a, a very important aspect of this is that that is very hard to do on your yes. own. <laughs> yes. Um, and this is this is part of why you know these monks they aren't hermits. Um, they don't each live in in individual um, you know hermitages, totally isolated from each other. They live in community and they have community rules to make it easier 
to schedule their lives in a way that helps them to attain the goals that they set. Mm -hmm. If you're just the one person on your team at work who is like, well, sorry, it's 5 p.m., I'm not going to respond to emails anymore. Well, suddenly you become a problem to your Mm -hmm. boss and you very well may lose your job. If, however, there's a company-wide norm set that, all right, we're not going to, no one is obligated to respond to work emails after 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. or whatever. Um, In fact, the the Canadian province of Ontario, and I I think also um, this is, has happened in Europe too, is is pushing comp- recently passed legislation that will push companies to set those rules, um, so that you know the person who wants to draw boundaries around their work is not doing it alone, so they can mm-hmm. feel legitimated in having those boundaries. You having gone through a burnout, have you? Like, did your definition of success and maybe even happiness change after you've gone through the burnout? And what was it like pre-burnout, if it happens, pre-burnout and post-burnout recovery? Yeah, that that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, I think that, Those are the questions that we want. Right, yeah. <laughs> I think that I had not... Not necessarily consciously, but I had really defined my happiness in terms of my work. Mm -hmm. That if I got a job as a college professor, if I earned tenure, if I had, you know, these publications or something like that, if I won these awards, then I was living a good life. And that was a huge mistake (laughs) Um, for many reasons. But um, yeah, now I, the fact is like I preach this view of work a little better than I practice it. I Mm. still probably put a little too much emphasis on my accomplishments. Um, But I think I'm getting better. For one thing, and um, I, you know, I no longer have a full time job. So I, I write. I, I work as a freelance writer. Um, I, you know, set my own schedule and my own goals on that. Uh, and I teach still part time. And what that means is that no one thing, kind of, is my entire identity uh if and i don't well and partly i I just don't i don't invest everything that i am and that i have in my classes now um partly because i know that well the writing is really important to me and i'm gonna do the best job i can in the classroom but if class doesn't go well that is not an indictment of my entire life um, if class go- does go well, that's great, but that doesn't validate my entire life. Um, and I-, I think that I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I-, I am a little bit better at, um, you know, finding, finding meaning 
elsewhere, you know, in, in hobbies and in, in relationships, uh, you know, I am married, um, and my relationship with my wife is very important, of course. Um, so I, yeah, like it's, it's a, it's a journey for me too. Uh, I'm, I'm not at the destination. I guess that's for all of us, right? <laughs> right. Well, and this is just like a thing like that I think is true of a lot of writers. You know, we write in order to convince ourselves that something mm. is true. In many ways, you know, I I wrote this book for someone like me who maybe has over-identified with work and finds it unsatisfying. Um, but in another sense, I wrote it really for me to be like, you know, dear John, you need to believe this. You know? I, I wanted to, to write it partly to, yeah, to convince myself that there is another way to live your life. Mm -hmm. I think that we all do that. Like, not just like writers, coaches, teachers, they are always teaching themselves. Even though it sounds like it's not about you, in some way it's always going to be about you. I think like it happens for you that you have written a book about burnout, but that is not just for John. It's a book for nearly everyone that has at least partially gone through the, the process of burning out. And I think that every single person on earth or let's just say 95% of people, like this is not scientifically proven, of course, but let's just say 95% of people have gone through some kind of similar feelings of either exhaustion, cynicism, or loss of identity. Um, and, and, and yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, 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 that's true. At least I, I hope that that, I hope it's true that, uh, you know, that this message will, will resonate with, with many, many people. No, I think it will. And uh, at least I hope so too as well. Um, to, to end this conversation, I have, I have a few like a, a fast questions. So the first question is, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? I like when you think. <laughs> When you take the, well, the time to think, that's that that's a really good sign. Yeah, I guess it's it's two two pieces of advice uh, from my parents. Um, Ooh, nice. One one of them uh, I use as the epigram to the book, and I don't know if it's good advice, but it's something that you know I think about a lot. Uh, and it's from my father, who said, "You don't have to like it. That's why it's called work." Mm. Um. That's, that's a very kind of pragmatic view of work, not very idealistic. And I am arguing in a way towards um, uh, towards a more realistic view of work. But at the same time, you know, I can't fully embrace uh, my own father's view. Um, related, you know, my mother uh, would often say, you know, don't wish your life away. So I would say like, ah, you know, I wish that I, you know, had this thing or I wish that I was older. I wish I was out of school or something like that. And in doing so, you know, you're kind of skipping over 
all of the great experience that is possible here and now. Um, that's something I constantly need to remind myself when I'm I'm facing when I'm facing difficulty, and I say, "Gosh, I wish that it were you know, if only it were." you know, next, this time next week, I'll be done with this difficult thing. Well, that's a whole week of my life that I'm saying I don't want to experience. Um, mm. But, you know, and that I'm never going to have that week again. Um, you know, our, our lives are finite. And um, yeah, we should not hope to get beyond any part of them. It's, there's, you know, there's, there's joy to be found, uh, you know, at every point. Mm-hmm. I love that. Sorry, that was not a quick answer. <laughs> but that's good. That's good. That's elaborate answer. Yeah. The second question is, what is the worst advice that you've ever been given? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, something like do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life or something like that. Um, that's pretty the- bad. Uh I think that that's the kind of advice that that leads to the problem that we're facing right now. Not that we shouldn't, not that it's bad to do what you love for work, um, but you know, love love will will not uh, pay the bills, and that that kind of love will often go away. Mm-hmm. And the last question is, what would you le- like to leave as advice for the audience that is listening right now? Yeah, the for the the audience, I think that what I want to tell them is to to think about what they expect from work. You know, what material rewards, what non-material rewards do they expect? To ask if their actual job is living up to them, to those ideals. And then to talk about that, to talk about the ideals, the reality, where the gap between them might be with their coworkers, their friends, their partners, whoever. Um, Because the only way, you know, we're, your burnout and my burnout are connected. Um, You know, it's other people at work at, uh, at you know, people who are our customers and the people for whom we are customers who cause our burnout. And, you know, that means that I contribute to your burnout and vice versa. And we're only going to solve each other's burnout and we're only going to solve burnout on the large scale if we can all admit that there is this problem that we're all implicated in it and that it emerges from both our ideals from work and our reality and if we can start talking about that we might be able to start aligning ideals and reality a little bit better on a large scale i love that i absolutely love that it's all about communication and solving each other's problems right Great. Um, John, I want to say thank you. I absolutely love this conversation and I am so sure that this will have an impact, at least to my audience. They have been requesting this and 
the, the thing is, oh, burnout, burnout is something that is not talked about enough. And in my environment, every single, like I have heard from most, like every single person that they have experienced some kind of it. Like after having heard your definition of like the, th- the, three, the, the spectrum of burnout, I have heard at least one person tell me that they have felt some similar feeling. And the first step towards change is always being aware that there is something, that, it, that there is something that isn't, that is wrong. And I think that your book is clearly delivering that, that spectrum. And uh, I hope that we can change the culture of burnout for the future because it's definitely something that we do not want to live with in the future. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.